Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny. And you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This week, we're really excited to be joined by Christina Sweeney-Baird. Christina is the author of The End of Men, which was released yesterday on Barra Press. Christina is also a full-time corporate litigation lawyer as well. So she has quite a lot on her plate. Um, Christina, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's lovely to see you. I've been so excited about this book. Ever since I read the premise um, last year in the bookseller, I was just like, what? This perfectly timed book, perfect concept for a book. It just is so exciting. Can you tell um, our listeners a little bit more about it? Yes. So The End of Men is a piece of speculative fiction that is set between 2025 and 2031. And it explores the question, what would the world look like without men? So in the book, there is a virus to which women are immune that quickly kills 90% of the male population. So you follow a cast of characters, both men and women, and it's told in first person narrative style. And you follow them as they both in the short term try to keep themselves and their families and their friends safe from this virus. Um, And then in the longer term, as they try to cope, adapt and change the world. So there's people like Amanda McLean, who's a Glasgow A&E doctor who treats patient zero, Catherine, who's an anthropologist in London, who has a husband and a young son who's trying to keep safe, um, and Toby, who is stuck on a ship outside Iceland and he can't go back to, uh, to shore because if he does, he'll probably catch the virus and die. Um, so through those different characters, you get a sense of how the world would change and also what would stay the same if you suddenly had this massive gender imbalance. It's just an incredible concept for a book. Um, how did you come up with it? So... Um, I read The Power back in early 2018, and I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people, it really opened my mind to the use of speculative fiction to explore gender. And it was like, okay, so that's what happens if women are physically more powerful than men. What happens if you just don't have men in the same way? You know, what happens if you suddenly mm-hmm. have this massive structural shift? And it was such an interesting thought experiment to explore what the world book would look like without men because the way the world is kind of structurally built um and i had also read world war z by max brooks um when i was kind of 21 and i remember that book so vividly because i found it terrifying even though it's about this very very high concept idea of a zombie war and it's told in this multi-character you know un report style and so my brain kind of jammed together those two ideas and when i pitch the book i do often say that it is i think the power meets world war z so that was really it. And I, I remember very clearly having the idea going, what, what, you know, the question, what would it look like without men? And going, I don't think I've ever read that. I don't think there is a book actually that's really covering that and certainly not the way I want to do it. I need to, I need to write that book. Um, mm. And it was that kind of penny drop moment. It's so exciting. It's, um, yeah, so you had your penny drop moment and then it was exceptionally well received when you pitched it, if I'm right. Yes, it was. It was one of those things where it was really fortunate. And I've I wrote a book. I wrote a manuscript that never went anywhere before that. So I feel like I do know, you know, what it's mm-hmm. like to, to not have the dream scenario. But I was I was very fortunate. I think the book. I think the idea is one that people find interesting. And so throughout the process, you know, it always kind of went quite well. Which I think is also as an author before you get published, you know, that was very heartening. I had a, a number of offers from different agents, and then my agent and I rewrote the book, and then the book kind of went through the publishing process, and it was that was really, really dreamy. And it was wonderful to end up with Barra, whose team was fabulous. So it did feel, I suppose, at each stage of the process, like people went, that sounds like a really interesting idea. Mm. Um, and happily, I mean, I, 
also as a writer you have to think your own idea is interesting oh you know yeah. and I, I found it so interesting to write it and think about it so it was mm. lovely when other people agreed yeah I think you've got to be the first champion of your work and then you've got to make sure that your agent is the second and then your editor's got to be the third everybody's got to be on board don't they that, that's exactly. so interesting. So the first manuscript that you that you did, um, you didn't get your agent with that manuscript. You went back and wrote um, the end of men, and then and then secured your agent. Exactly. So I wrote that that first manuscript, which was a historical romance novel, which I'm conscious, like the plot twist between that and the end of men, couldn't really make yeah, it up. That's really but um, I'm a big. It's really really different. Um, but. I'd, I suppose I've, I've always had ideas in different genres and I, I read a lot of romance, I read a lot of historical romance and I actually think it's, I often say to people if they're not sure what to start with, learning how to write through a genre that you understand really well that has a structure, mm, you know, yeah. A and B for some reason aren't together yet and at the end of the book they're going to be together is quite a helpful frame upon which to build learning how to write a novel. So Absolutely. I wrote that from 23 to 25 and it did take me two years of kind of writing and I kept losing the plot both in the literary and metaphorical senses and kind of <laughs> chopping stuff out and going I don't have to do this but it was actually while I was writing that about 18 months into writing that I had the idea of the end of men and so and I knew and like immediately knew, I was like right the end of men that's the idea that's mm. actually going to really get this far so I finished the first book so I thought no I, I refuse to have yet another like first couple of chapters like I'm finishing this manuscript and then I queried it to I think six or seven agents because on principle it mm. felt ridiculous mm -hmm. to do all the work to finish a novel and then to not query it but I, I literally started writing End of Men a few days after I finished that first manuscript. Like I was absolutely certain it was kind of going to be the thing that would actually, you know, get me an agent, get me published. Because this is the thing that you hear time and time again when you're listening to um, writers talking about their work is very often there are um, <laughs> shady manuscripts lying in drawers. Uh, but also so quite often things that people either return to. Um, but there's also that kind of flash when people just go, right, this is it. This is the work that is actually going to become something. And somehow there's just that instinct. Yeah, it's, it is one of those things, isn't it? I mean, on the on the writing novel before, I would say that the best way to learn to write a novel is to write a novel. Absolutely. And so there is just this kind of unfortunate mm -hmm. thing where it's this mountain to climb, but ultimately that, you know, I've never had any creative writing training, as many people don't, um, but I, I learned to write a novel by, by, by actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I always say to people, look, the work is never wasted. So even if it mm -hmm. feels like, oh God, I cannot believe this book is going to get me published, it's, like, it's, it, it's going to be okay. That work is still enormously valuable and will make you a better writer. Mm -hmm. And then with the idea, it is, it, it's, it's actually really surprised me kind of talking to other writers, how many people had a slightly spooky, this is definitely it, even if they were like on their third manuscript or whatever, that they thought, no. And I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was whether it's partly just that if an idea really is strong, I think oddly in order to get published the first time your idea the actual pitch for the book has to be so much stronger because you need yes. to get through the doors of an agency and then you've got mm -hmm. to get through the doors of an editor who's like who are you you know whereas mm -hmm. if you've actually got a few books under your belt then people might buy a book partly because your name is on it they know you're a good writer um so I think mm -hmm. that strength of pitch and strength of idea and hook you know when you on publisher you go yeah that's really good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You have to almost kind of see it through different eyes as well when you are pitching. Is think what's going to get somebody's attention? What's actually going to jump off the page and jump out of countless numbers of emails that are coming in? I had a similar experience to you. Um, wrote a manuscript that um, I got requests for, but it wasn't it just wasn't right. I had quite a few people saying I really like your writing, so I knew I could do it. 
but I just wasn't doing it right. And then it was exactly the thing with the last days. I just was gripped. I think when you start dreaming your idea, that's when you know you're on to something as well. Yeah. And did you find I, so I had the thing where I think I had two, I didn't have any, I had one full manuscript and I had one very positive email from someone. I always her name, even though I still really think of her very highly because it was so nice. And she said, like, I'm not taking this on, but please submit to another agent in my agency and you write really well. And it's one of those odd things where it was honestly the most comforting email I think I've ever received in my life. Yeah. Having an, mm-hmm. an, an agent say objectively, she had no reason to lie to me you're a good writer you mm-hmm. know even though that book wasn't getting me anywhere actually yeah. I think only writing can a kind of um a rejection feel like a very comforting piece of kind of positive reinforcement I think this is so important to talk about because I think this is the importance of showing our work to other people because that's the kind of feedback we need in a way to know that it's okay it's not uh, it's not that I can't write it's that I haven't got mm-hmm. the right idea yet I haven't exactly. quite got there yet I haven't quite got the right novel or I haven't quite um moved forward enough as a writer yet but it's not necessarily what's there's nothing wrong with me as a writer yeah. I just need to keep going and yeah. I think we do need these moments where we get that little spur to just to keep going it's a positive rejection isn't it and then you can go right actually I can do this but maybe I have to be thinking a little bit more commercially or a bit more strategically but somebody who knows their stuff liked my work and that's kind of that's enough just to get you to that next stage completely so um during this time how how were you um organizing your writing life around your presumably quite busy day job as a lawyer so it's it always sounds really bizarre when I say that it was only when I started working as a lawyer that I really had the brain space and the bandwidth to to write properly my degree was very very intense law degrees often are and I wanted to like do lots of extracurriculars and spend time with my friends I know so I was always trying to write like in the summers when I was at uni and it just never worked and then I had to do you have to do kind of post degree qualifications and stuff for law and it was only one when basically all my studying my academic life was done and I started working as a lawyer in September 2016 I was 23 and I kind of went okay finally for the first time I actually just have this job you know I don't have to think about mm-hmm. should I be writing that essay or doing further reading I just have this job and it and it is by means being a lawyer in the city is an intense job but nonetheless you know I do I, I get weekends and there, there is work life there's work life balance I've always had that so it's in a nice way it's always been quite consistent like you know I've always been balancing writing with the same job and I work at the same I've always worked at the same firm um for me I'm a night owl always have been always will be um when I was a child my mum and I came to a kind of accord as to sleep <laughs> she was like I need to go to sleep <laughs> so you can I can't make you go to sleep you have to be in bed and fine do like read that's yeah. fine but like I really I like evening times my most productive hours are kind of 10 to 1 like 10 p.m to 1 a.m so that's always worked really well in that I was never going to be the person who was going to be kind of going to sleep at 11 p.m and, and waking up at I don't know half six or seven so I always write in the evenings um and I like writing I quite like writing on the weekends as well you know it's there's something quite nice about when you're fitting and writing at night suddenly writing for two hours and on a Saturday afternoon feels quite indulgent you're like oh I've got the whole mm. rest of the day yeah um, it's partly just fitting in and, and the thing I would say to people and I said to myself was to treat novel writing like a job long before anyone else does like I was writing very consistently and treating it really seriously for three and a half years before I got paid a penny and that's yeah. in the grand scheme of things not actually that long an amount of time but at the time <laughs> three and a half years of doing something without any guarantee actually that it is going to you know be published or, or actually be something that has any kind of financial return for the time you've put in 
that feels kind of like forever. So I think you do have to really commit to it in an emotional way and quite practically go, mm-hmm. I care about this. This is important to me. And I'm going to consistently with momentum, write this novel. I'm going to treat it seriously before, you know, before anyone else is doing it for you. Mm, Absolutely. I think so that's important. Yeah. yeah, that's another thing that kind of crops up time and time again. You've got to treat it like work for it to become work. And it's a very long apprenticeship that you can go through. But like you said earlier, nothing's ever wasted. It doesn't feel like, you know, that's time that you've put in where you're getting better at your craft. And the better you can be at it by the time your book comes out, the more important as well, because your book's not going to be judged. Um, you know, people aren't going to be going, oh, we'll be nice to her because she's a debut. You know, suddenly you're just being judged alongside everybody else who's ever had a book out. They suddenly become your colleagues, which is um, quite something to think of. Um, It's a brilliant writing routine. I think we speak a lot about writing routines um, and how important consistency is as well. I know that you very often post on your Instagram, um, like your little um, time logs that you do or like the logs that you do um, with your word count. Yes. Yeah, I, I find that really helpful. And, and I'm, I am also conscious of saying there are always going to be different ways for different people to do things. And I'm sure that someone has written a novel with half an hour every morning or writing 3000 words once a week. For me, um, momentum is everything. So I, I actually haven't written for a couple of weeks recently, which on the one hand, I kind of needed my my agent is, is currently looking at a second round. And on the other hand, I really need to get started again. And I'm noticing just how difficult it is to kind of get get started again after a few weeks off so for me momentum is important and that means writing every day I love taking things off lists (laughs) so (laughs) I track in kind of three different ways I have a note on my phone generally for word count especially if I'm doing a first draft I tend to nix that when I'm doing a second or third draft because it's like actually no the thing isn't whether I got 2,000 words done today the thing is whether I really made sure that this section was good and that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. word count related and then I have two, two different trackers. I have a daily word tracker, which is um, I get to colour in the day. If I've written five, uh, a thousand words, that used to be 500. I'm now a bit busier, so it's a thousand. And then um, I have a kind of, it's actually, I took it straight from V.E. Schwab's um, Instagram. She's a wonderful author who wrote The Invisible Life of Addie the Room, which I adore. And she does like 30 um, minute writing sprints. And I was finding I was really fried last month in the month of in the February, March this year, just I think everyone was have just to find everything, everything in the world. Yeah. Yes, everything. Right. It was just challenging, and I was finding it really difficult to go. Well, tonight I need to sit down and write fifteen hundred words. Whereas, you know, a thirty-minute work sprint, you can do that. You can just yeah. go right, putting my phone on a timer, and it was actually really helpful in that I found that as time went on, I found that I could make the, the sprints longer. You know, I'd get to thirty yeah. minutes to go. Oh, actually, I quite like to keep going, and I've started doing hour sprints for an hour and a half. So I'm aware that all of that makes me sound like a very boring and not at all spontaneous person, but it does really <laughs> help, I think, to kind of give yourself credit. And that's a big thing for me is, you know, you sit down and you go, yes, I did write a thousand words and I get to colour in the yeah. thing. And you get to look back over the last month and see the work you did. So do you have a graph that you've printed out and that you physically colour in or do you, how do you actually track it? Like, how do you physically track that? It's in um, like a notebook. And so I just like draw basically kind of, so the, the daily word count is a bunch of concentric circles um, uh. that I've then like divided up to days. And then the um, the like, writing sprint tracker is more like just a grid. And then I just colour in yeah. um, squares. But it's quite old. I need to start doing that again. I used to. I did with the book. And I find, like you say, when you're editing, it's different because you're doing the whole like, you know, you're making Cutting words, words better. <laughs> yeah, or right. you're you're polishing, you're you're making it better. So you're kind of 
ending up with the same amount of words but they're just better words so you're kind of your I word count doesn't really change all at times that's why that's why the work sprints are so helpful mm. when you're editing or rewriting because you can go I worked for two and a half hours yesterday and it's just and I for did me do that, it right I did that I did the work and actually yeah. even if the workout stayed the same that's not the point the point is that I sat down and I showed up to to kind of use the cliche term that's a brilliant idea because I tend to put I put too much value on word count on like the actual output and not necessarily giving myself enough credit for the fact that I have been sitting and working all day and the day's just gone and you go what did I do today so yeah I might do that I like that you made idea. better words Ali That's <laughs> made better words I like that making my words better today <laughs> very elegant sentence yes so um you talking of editing were you editing the end of men during the pandemic or was it submitted before so it was submitted before so it sold before the pandemic um so I'd gone through the writing process and the rewriting process with my mm -hmm. agent and then but then we went my editor and I were kind of midway through edits basically when the pandemic started so we did have the incredibly bizarre experience of going there's this book that I've written about a pandemic and now there's a pandemic um but we we took a fairly simple approach which was basically to not change that much um, we didn't we there's no mention of COVID in the book and that was really important to me I wanted the end of men to remain in the kind of fictional universe in which it is mm -hmm. and I've read a book recently actually which clearly had been edited and mentioned you know I found it incredibly jarring um maybe other people won't but I just that was really important to me there's no mention of COVID and we really didn't change much the only thing we actually changed ironically um is that I had had the pandemic in the end of men starting with a pangolin which we removed and back in like you know April 2020 I think we all thought that it was a pangolin that had started it and that was just a, quite weird my editor was like we just we, we need to take this out because people are going to think that you've copied real life that, the other way around so that is so strange that you randomly picked the same animal well so when you basically the pangolins are the world's most trafficked animal so oh, okay. in, in so my defense, if you do, if like, if you research pandemics, as I had obviously done, I thought, well, that's actually the most likely animal to cause a pandemic because it is the most trafficked animal, but it is still it a little was. bit close for comfort. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so that, that was, that was the only kind of change in terms of how the pandemic spread that we, that we got rid of. And it's been quite interesting actually seeing some of the early reader reviews, a few people have kind of very confidently said in their review, and she's clearly changed this thing or added in like the term social distancing and editing. It was like, no, actually... All, a lot of those terms are all terms that are present in like public health literature mm -hmm. and in, you know, epidemiology. I think I've missaid that word, but that, you know, obviously we're now all very aware of them, but that's all concepts that have existed mm -hmm. long before now for various other pandemics that have existed. And there have been many, many pandemics. And I think actually the thing that's, I don't know if you guys have seen these, but, um, but some people have been sharing graphs over this past year about different pandemics and their different effects over like the history of humanity, the ones that they know of and how big they were and the spikes and and they've there's been so many there's been so many of them so yeah sure it's a really it's odd thing there is and it's it's one of the i do find it odd now and i look back because i remember reading an article like in one of the public health journals or like tropical health journals um when i was writing an event it's 2018 or 2019 i can't remember which month it was and it was a, it was a, it was a, a scientist saying there is going to be a pandemic yeah, like, this is a waiting. time bomb Mm. right they were just mm -hmm. expecting it and, and like obviously you, with hindsight you go at the time I found it quite I was like oh, okay it's quite good I suppose the book is maybe more feasible and with hindsight that does feel very very odd it must have been a strange experience to have 
you know, February last year when we were seeing it coming, for you to be working on something that was so close to what was about to happen must have been quite bizarre for you. It was. And I'm at the same time, I think my brain partly because obviously I was living through it as well. So I think partly it's like a self-preservation thing. My brain occasionally needed to kind of gauge the distance between what I'd written and, mm. and what what was happening in real life, but kind of didn't spend too much time on that. And I do, I do always say the pandemic in the book is very, very different. You know, it, it only affects men, which is an enormous change. And it is, you know, it has a 90% mortality rate. So I think when people, so a lot of like early readers have read the book and said, actually it made them feel a lot better about COVID, partly because it's so much worse I mean it is truly apocalyptic mm. um and also because it's so different you know so you're not going yeah. oh wow well that kind of that's what happened to me last week you're going no this yeah. is actually a very different verse which I think is quite important as well because obviously um when um editors and people were talking about what they were looking for kind of deep in the pandemic everyone was talking about wanting feel-good fiction nobody was wanting um plague novels or anything that was too close to home but so you've not replicated something it's, it's something that exists completely on its own exactly and I think also there's a something I find it so interesting seeing the trends of like what people choose to pick up um and so like my comfort reading is romance novels I like knowing that these two people by the end are going to be together and there's a complete certainty to that that, that really makes so my heart feel super satisfying positive. isn't it so mm. satisfying so satisfying but there's I think there's something about having resolution in a story when in real life we don't have resolution you know mm -hmm. so in the end of men it's across six years and you have a beginning a middle and, the, and an end and obviously it's not necessarily it's gonna, everything's gonna be hunky-dory but you get to at least see characters and understand and have an ending that's wrapped up you know and I think there's actually something quite deeply comforting about that I think that's also why people like thrillers even if a thriller mm -hmm. is, has something very scary happening there is resolution at the end and you get to mm -hmm. close the book and go I know what happened and everything you know was kind of sorted by the end and so I think that can also be comforting and that's why people like reading dark books or darker yeah. books even um even when the world is it's quite dark but i think that's actually really important just now as well because we're kind of we're obviously hoping that we're quite near our own resolution um in terms of the pandemic but obviously we don't know what's ahead we don't know what's coming next so to read a book where people um manage to triumph and where it does get wrapped up and there's something really nice about that. I think you're right. That kind of just, right, this is a resolution. And we all want a resolution right now. So it's kind of the book that we're hoping for as well. And I love, I know that when I'm really stressed, I like reading um, detective fiction. And it's mm. the exact same thing. It's just this really predictable structure. You know what's going to happen. You, usually, you know it's never going to be the person who you think it is at the beginning. It's going to be the least likely person. But it's really comforting it's exactly the same thing um how do you manage to balance quite a rigorous writing schedule with work um part of it is definitely having so i i feel comfortable working at night as in that is just something where that yeah. works quite well for me i actually trained very seriously to be a classical harpist which is one of the most niche things to spend one's childhood and adolescence <laughs> doing um and i really loved it my parents aren't musical like i was never pushed into it they were like the harp okay um i just really loved it and so i spent you know from the age of kind of four to 16 i practiced for several hours a day mm. and i went to the royal college of music junior department every saturday so like my saturdays always had like something going on they weren't free and, and I loved it and it was creative and wonderful and also I had to balance it with school. And so to me, it does, like, I'm definitely used to having this concept of like an academic thing that I do day to day, a creative thing I do very seriously in the evenings and on the weekends. And I do sometimes feel actually like I have just replicated that yeah. pattern 
but with writing, but it does mean that to me, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. Um, so part of it is that, and part of it is just, just committing to it. I mean, some, sometimes it's really grim and sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes I'm writing a draft and it's a complete joy and work's not too busy. And I'm like, this is great. And sometimes I'm doing, especially like a rewrite where I'm having to chuck out 80% of the book and it's soul destroying. But at that point, I'm, I think you just have to kind of go, this is going to be a grim month just is mm-hmm. you just, just lean into it you just go this is gonna be a great month and I've got fun stuff happening next month I've got fun things in the diary I'm looking forward to <laughs> but I'm just gonna be tired and a bit overwhelmed for a few weeks and it is what it is and I think that acceptance sometimes is kind of very important and just leaning into it and remembering that it's not going to last forever at some point the draft is mm-hmm. going to be done and I would always rather work very very hard and have a kind of painful six weeks rather than have a quite challenging three months so I just kind of lean in and tend to have quite intense deadlines. My lovely agent always, like, she's like, what? she used to say kind of, okay, like what kind of timing works and but we can figure it out as we go along. And I was like, no, if you don't give me a deadline, nothing's going to happen. So mm. now she's like, right, what deadline do you want? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, what about this date? And I'm like, yes, love this energy. <laughs> intense deadline. You have just described my entire working life. I <laughs> might my, my organize my whole year based on, okay, this is a busy month. This is a quieter month that's a busy month. This is a quieter month. And that's how I managed to get through <laughs> because I it's have, the, it's, um, because work is very seasonal for me. So yeah. So you just have to kind of, um, it's a it's about accepting, accepting that there are certain months of the year where it's really crazy and I don't get enough sleep and everything's a bit busy. And then there are other months of the year where everything is spacious and it's lovely. And I just have to keep reminding myself when I'm in the busy times. <laughs> exactly. And then you reap the rewards of those busy times. That's the thing as well. I think it's really nice. To, I, re- I really focus on how good it's going to feel when I send off this draft to my agent and I get to go off and, okay, in former times, go off like a weekend away somewhere. That's obviously not happening now. But just that, that I, I really focus on that a lot of like how, just think how much relief there's going to be when you get to sit mm-hmm. down with a novel and go out for dinner and not worry about this draft you just have to kind of keep that keep that in your mind yeah I think that's the thing isn't it is that idea of this will end I will get through this and I'll feel really good at the end of it as well I really love that feeling when things have been really intense and you send something off and you feel so good for about 20 minutes and then you get riddled (laughs) you get riddled with the fear of oh my goodness, what are they going to say? <laughs> what have I done? What have I committed to? Blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there's that, there is that nice spell where you go, oh, this is good. Maybe for you, it's longer than 20 minutes. <laughs> Not much. Maybe a night, maybe a night. Yeah. yeah. Until you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, oh, oh my goodness, your 3am thoughts come alive. Um <laughs> Yeah, but I'm really excited about the book. I think it sounds absolutely incredible. And it isn't just released here either, is it? No. So um, it's being released in 19 territories in 17 different languages, which is very exciting. Um, And so it's out now in the US, Canada, the UK and Finland rather wonderfully so I have a few oh, finished wonderful. copies oh, um, on the table next to me um yeah and it's, been, it's actually such a lovely experience like I've become friends with my um Portuguese translator we randomly kind of connected on Instagram she went hello I'm translating your book and it's been it's been so so lovely getting to know some of the people actually you know turning your words into into different languages oh that's oh, incredible fantastic. my um one of my really close friends is a Finnish translator um she translated all the how to train your dragon books into finish oh and, what an yeah. amazing job to do and roll dal as well and she talks about how 
how interesting the job is, you know, because you really have to enter the text. You've really got to enter yeah. the person's head to be able to rewrite it effectively as well. Which I, is... I've heard Elif Shifak talk about this a bit, actually, because she's a Turkish writer who writes in English and she has a Turkish translator. So even though she speaks Turkish, obviously, <laughs> she grew up there. She has somebody else translate her books because she said there is such an art to translation and it's a skill in and of itself, which she hands over to somebody else to do, which is so fascinating. That's so interesting. Also, because the idea of having to write a book twice, you know, <laughs> yes. and having, having it done and then having to write it again in another language, I mean, honestly, could, could not cope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine. Do you find once you're done, you're quite happy to hand it over? Yes, I am. Um, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm, if anything, I lean towards a slapdash. So probably a little bit too happy to hand it over, to be honest. <laughs> I definitely think Sugar Lou given that another day or two. Um, yes, I am very happy to hand it over. Um, I'm, I work with brilliant agent, brilliant editors, and it is truly like I want to know what you guys think. I want to know what your thoughts are because you're going to make this a lot better and generally mm -hmm. when I hand it over. You know, I've done everything I can. I structurally now don't know if this is working or not. And so we need to figure out what the next way kind of forward is. And then also I think ultimately with the book, you know, I don't think you should let it go unless you're happy with it. So, I mean, I'm really proud of the end of that. I think it's a really good book. It's, I mean, by the time you're, the book that is on shelves has gone through, you know, two or three, two, three really major rewrites has been edited and had the, the you know, input from I think eight different people, including, you know, four professional editors and numerous agents. So it's really, it's this kind of shining, honed, polished thing. And it obviously is so different from the first draft, but mm -hmm. I'm really proud of it. And I, I do say to, to authors who sometimes get in touch if they're going through submission process or they're, um, they're kind of getting to the point now where they're actually working with editors. I do say, you know, you have to be, you, sh you should be happy with it. I think you should really be happy with the work mm -hmm. when it's heading off to the printer. And if it's not, you need to say stop because when it's on the shelves, you want to be proud of it and happy with it and not mm -hmm. go, that's that niggling thing I could have changed. Yeah, absolutely. Do you still have your first draft? I do. I do. I have it on my laptop. Um, it's quite weird actually because it's also my sent items to, to, you know, to different agents. Um, and it's, it's, so it's so different. So basically the, the, the book is the end of men has kind of five key characters that you follow and then a few additional perspectives. Um, but you do follow these characters that you get very emotionally attached to, you know, you're really following them over the course of six years and seeing them go through enormous life changes and this very scary thing. Whereas the first draft was told a bit like a UN report. So each character was only there once. So we really did cut my agent and I a huge amount from that first draft down. And it, I'm really glad I did that draft because it meant that the world building was that basically was a world building mm -hmm. draft. Not mm. that I realised at the time. So you had, you know, I thought about so many different aspects and societies and cultures, you know, what would happen to law firms if suddenly 90% of the world's men died? What would happen to hospitals? What would happen mm -hmm. to parliament? What would happen? How would it be different in the US or Canada or here or in Singapore you know in France how do these different places you know how are they impacted in different ways so I'm really glad I did that work and I think some of it definitely found its way into that final draft um but it is in so many ways a completely different novel to the novel that's now on the shelves oh, that must be I, so, oh, yeah. so can, I, can I just ask as well because um the audiobook has a number of different actors reading it which is actually quite unusual um and and was that did you did you have a say in that and was that something you wanted or was that something that um that Borough Books decided that they wanted to do so Borough decided and I was thrilled that they had so it's one of those things where they said yeah this is a plan for the audiobook what do you think and I went that sounds excellent I think it makes such a huge difference and quite a few of the characters have very different accents mm, and there's men yeah. and women so I think you really do 
get a sense that they are different people. And I think it would have been very confusing with one person and it just makes it so much more immersive. You know, this is Amanda and she's a 45 old Scottish woman and this is, you know, Dawn and she's you know, in her 60s and from London and, you know, this is Toby and like that, he's from, you know, Yorkshire. That, I think that difference is really helpful. And they, um, I got to hear all of the different voices before we started, we kind of went through a process. So they, they all really do sound like how I imagine the characters to be. Um, so I'm really thrilled Barra did an, an amazing, amazing job with the audiobook. Because in a way, it sort of reminds me a little bit of um, of the um, uh, um, the War of the Worlds, in a way. The, the original War of the Worlds um, was broadcast on the radio, but it was done as if it was a radio programme, which is obviously not how your book is done. But um, it, it, it's, it was so immersive that apparently they had like calls to um, emergency services and stuff at the time because people thought what was happening was real on the radio. Um, but it, had, it has that listening to the book has that similar kind of immersive feel in a way. Um, so yeah, no, it's just, it's exciting because it's not a choice that a lot of, um, that a lot of, um, publishers are making I think most of the time they use one actor to do all of the different characters so yes it was just um it was just I think it's it's a really it's a really nice aspect of it I think um and it is very I was very surreal when I've got the audiobook first through like hearing these voices speaking the words that I'd written and then read so many times it was really wonderful very surreal it must have been brilliant. I know that a lot of people talk about their first draft, um, like you just did, um, as a world building exercise very often as well, which I think is coming back to the idea that nothing is wasted. That You know, you're doing something distinct with your first draft and then later drafts, you're going on to do something else and then something else so that a book becomes um, layers, doesn't it? It's layered from all the drafts and it's this final product of everything kind of stacking up on top of each other too. Completely. And it's, I think also that's something which I didn't know, you know, and I, I think most mm. people, I think you can only figure it out actually by doing it. And I think even yeah. if someone had said to me, you know, when I was 23 and started writing my first novel, if they said, you know, by the way, a book to get on the shelves is going to take several drafts and you're mm. going to have to rewrite them very intensely and chuck out tens and tens and tens of thousands of words. I've gone, I don't think so. Thank you very much for your input. <laughs> but I think I'm going to write a perfect first draft. So thanks. And of course, it's not, you know, both because I just didn't have a concept really of what a writing novel involved, also because I'm 23. Um, but yeah, it, it is just one of those things. And I actually, I do now to think it's really helpful for people to talk about it so that you do, mm. when you're writing a novel, you don't go, well, hang on, my first draft seems kind of janky and not fantastic with hindsight. That's fine. That's, that's kind of just part of the process. And as you say, yeah. it's like layers. It gets more and more complex, more and more interesting and mm -hmm. deeply kind of drawn, you know, with characters that feel real. That's just a process that, that, that grows over time. Yeah, it's a fascinating process. It's really, it's just so interesting. So you're on to your second book now, is that right? I am. So I've written two drafts um, and I'm actually starting kind of today or tomorrow. I say that because I met this artist yesterday and then didn't, that was to be fair, probably slightly daft, obviously not, wasn't going to start a publication. Yet. I tend to kind of start thinking about <laughs> it around now to kind of go back into my draft, my third draft of that book. So the first to second draft probably cut about 80%. I think now second to third draft, we're going to, probably cut about 50% but really have a better sense of like the timeline I think mm. especially with speculative fiction you have to get your world right and your timeline right and your mm. perspectives right and that's 
three yeah. things are it's so difficult to do that in a plan you just have to write it and figure out what's mm. going on and how are you seeing this world through people's eyes yeah. and what is that world doing and which you know snippet of it you in so yeah i'm really excited it's it's a really it's an idea that i'm really kind of happy with and um the characters are now really kind of there but it's also exciting to then go okay i think this third draft is going to be probably structurally what the book is going to be and it's mm. kind of like there's light at the end of the tunnel You're getting closer and then, now exactly and then we'll move into what i would call editing so i think there's there's really for me there's rewriting which is really mm -hmm. massive structural stuff loads and loads and loads of work is getting you know chucked out and i'm just writing fresh words and then editing which is you know honing polishing yeah making things a bit tighter um so yeah i'm excited so that's going to be kind of my i think my may really is what i'm going to spend doing that so that's speculative fiction again it is indeed it is speculative fiction yes Ooh, exciting. <laughs> I look forward to the next bookseller announcement to be able to go, oh, yes, this one, another one. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, so um, we always um, have a chat about what we've been reading. Um, and uh, so, Ali, do you want to go first this week? What have you been reading? Um, yes, I read... Um, I'm trying to think when I read it last weekend, an absolutely brilliant book. So I have been reading um, a lot of books from Chateau this year, actually. Chateau's list just is on fire. I keep um, buying books, which <laughs> I need to stop doing. But I read this one. Um, you can see it here. It's called Letters to Camando by Edmund Dewal. And it is amazing. It is a very... Um, interestingly structured book it's structured as a series of letters which I absolutely loved so there's this kind of really intimate feel to it although it feels like as the reader you're observing the intimacy rather than actually partaking of it which which I really enjoyed um it is a this tells the story of um a French man he was a banker um Moise de Camondo and he built this incredible testament. He built this house um, on the uh, Rue de Monceau in Paris, which I used to go to because um, it's a park just there, this gorgeous park. And I lived in Paris for a little bit and I used to go there and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, so the book just made me really Paris sick. And obviously we can't travel just now. So I actually, after I read the book, went on um, onto street map and walked my old parts of Paris so that I could kind of feel like I was there. Anyway, I digress. This book is absolutely excellent. So it tells the story of Camando who builds this kind of testament to France and Frenchness, his house, he um, stuffs full of artifacts, of art, of beautiful furniture, of these um, gorgeously crafted things, of tapestries, rugs, just this wonderful museum eventually that he builds it is a home it's his family home that he builds he's of Jewish descent he is Jewish but he gives away a lot of his um his family's Jewish artifacts and this house really is very French he it's kind of a testament to assimilation and Frenchness and then his son um serves in World War One and his son's plane disappears and his son Nassim dies and he Upon his son's death, he changes his will and he bequeaths his house to France. And so when he dies in 1935, it becomes the Musée de Nisim de Camondo. 
so it becomes the museum of his son and he says that nothing is to be changed nothing at all is to be moved there's this inventory of artifacts and nothing's to be moved he has um, an archive basically of receipts of letters of everything in the attic and it just becomes static on his death it just becomes this um yeah this testament and it's very very french and then in 1940 paris is declared an open city and that's when everything goes wrong his children are rounded up as the jewish people were and they are part of the transport of the jews and they get taken despite the fact that they try to argue that they should have dispensation because one of them has become a catholic although she became a catholic just after the law was passed that you couldn't change religion um, they try to argue that their father gifted this to france that they gave art to museums you know there's been this huge they've done so much for the country but they're still rounded up and eventually murdered in concentration camps and it is such a moving book it is a book that tells a part of history that i didn't know anything about and it tells it so cleverly because you're told about the museum first and there's pictures as well it's beautiful so you kind of get this full grasp of all these gorgeous artifacts and beautiful artwork and everything and then suddenly chapter 49 I think it is is one of the most brutal chapters I've ever read because um Dewald just lists what happens just this series of events in Paris when it's the French government who are rounding up Jewish people and I knew nothing about this I don't I didn't get taught it in history um and it's just absolutely so powerful so moving and terrifying as well because everything changes so quickly everything moves so quickly um and the house is still there it's still a museum that you can still go and visit and when Paris opens up again and when we can travel I will be straight there because I won't see everything that's in the book as well but I would thoroughly recommend it um and the book as well as an artifact is like gorgeous so it's the cover's a bit thicker I think than covers usually are so it's really heavy mm. in your hand and it's got the papers heavy it's a book of an artist really it is such a, like an exacting book and the tone of it is so beautifully written as well so yeah thoroughly recommend it um and I gave it to my daughter once she finishes she's doing all her GCSEs just now but she loves history so I was like right have you heard about this I was reading her snippets of what happened and she's like why don't we do this in history why don't we get taught this and we realize obviously what we get taught in history is just a narrative really it's just yeah. something that suits the country but um yeah absolutely brilliant book I I want to read it again because I read it too quickly I need to go back and read it Oh, that sounds so, that sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Just so before um, lockdown, like literally the week before lockdown started, you know, over a year ago, I saw Leopoldstadt, um, which is the, which was the latest Tom Stoppard play, which is about um, a Viennese, a Jewish Viennese family and about the decline of that family from like, I think the 1880s to the 1950s, 60s and what happened mm. to that family over those decades. And it sounds very similar yeah in lots of ways it's is. just such an incredibly powerful way to tell a story of um a huge event in history through a family it's very clever because you get to know the characters you can get to know them really intimately and you really care about them and you really get the sense of um what he's created the importance of this museum 
and the importance of all these artifacts. And then suddenly it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much you try and assimilate. It doesn't matter. It ultimately comes down in the eyes of the government to who your grandparents were. It's, mm. it's nothing about who you are or mm. what you've done. And yet the government and the country are content to keep this museum, which just is just insane. Mind-blowing. So, yeah, really good book. Thoroughly recommend it. What have you been reading this week? Um, I have, because the, the Women's Prize shortlist was announced this week, so I was trying to crack through as many of the long lists as I could before they announced it. So I read three Women's Prize long listers this week. Um, shall I, I might talk about one that didn't make the shortlist um, that I really enjoyed and was really interesting, Nothing But Blue Sky by Kathleen McMahon. Oh, gosh, I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. I'm really sorry to any Irish people listening. Um, it is such an interesting book. It's a lot kind of quieter than some of the other books on that long list. Um, it's a story of a man who has recently been widowed. And it's, a, it's about him examining his relationship with his wife over 20 years, essentially. Um, and it's, it's beautiful and imperfect. And he discovers lots of things about his relationships, relationship after the fact that he didn't understand at the time. And he discovers more about his wife that he didn't really understand. Or he just... I think hadn't even bothered to examine before rather than didn't know he just hadn't examined. And so it's a very interesting, quiet, um, introspective book, but just so beautifully done, really, really beautifully done. So I would highly recommend that to anyone who, um, who is looking for something, perhaps a good summer, a lot of it set in the summer and I was, I was craving, I was craving going away. There's quite a few trips in the book. <laughs> I was desperate to get away, but, um, but yeah, really, really beautifully written and, um, and written from a male perspective, which actually I don't, I have to say recently, I've, I've not written, read as much, um, which focus on male characters. And I think she did a beautiful job. So yeah, I'd highly recommend. Brilliant. And Christina, what have you been reading? if you've had any time to read in this slightly busy time. <laughs> I'm going to mention two books, which will make sense when I say that the first book that I read and that I finished this week was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. So I think quite a few people might have read it already and I don't need to necessarily <laughs> give a synopsis, but it is one of those things where I just had never, I just never gotten around to reading it. I'd owned mm. a beautiful paperback edition from Vintage for four years and I finally picked it up and kind of eked it out over a few weeks by dipping in and out because it's so beautifully written like obviously so you it's such an amazing concept but mm. the writing quality is just wonderful and I really like I, I I like books have to have quite a lot of plot for me that's kind of something that is important to me and so it's so lovely to read a book that has such good concepts such good world building and is so gripping and also has this really beautiful literary mm. writing heaven has mm -hmm. rocked it up to one of my top reads of all time um but a book that I also read recently that I keep dipping back into because it's so gorgeous is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab which has been on the New York Times bestseller list now for six months and I read it um a few I've read it a few months ago and I literally just keep going back to it and it tells the story of Addie in the 1700s in France and she is basically meant to get married and doesn't want to so she runs away and she prays to the gods after dark who you're not meant to pray to um and essentially sells a part of her soul to to the devil so she will live forever she will be immortal she won't age but she will be forgotten 
so she goes into a room and you see her and you go hello and then if you leave the room you come back you go who's this and so she can't ever be remembered and it's this it's 500 pages and yet I could happily have read frankly a thousand pages of it and it spans from the 1700s to you know present day New York and you go through she you see New Orleans you see Berlin you see Vienna and Paris and it's just I love stories like that that go through different historical mm-hmm. periods I think How to Stop Time and Matt Haig also does that really well it's just I love that it's so interesting to me to see how one character will respond differently in these different places and times um, and it's got a beautiful love story in it as well and it's really a testament to to what it means to be remembered like what does it mean like who you are as a person what you do in life and the connections you have with people um, remembrance remembrance is something that's kind of a key theme in the end of men as well like something I think about quite a lot um, you know this thing of when so many people die like how who gets remembered and how and how do mm. we make sure that the people that we love aren't forgotten um, and mm-hmm. it's it's just beautiful so I've been raving about it um, for months now but The Invisible Life of Andy Drew heaven heaven in a book that sounds so up my street I'm definitely gonna definitely gonna yeah. dig into that for sure it's a very clever concept as well sounds brilliant well thank you so much for joining us today Christina it was so brilliant to chat to you about um, your new book The End of Men which is out now for anyone who wants we'll put a link into the show notes as well and where's the best place people can find you if they want to connect so I'm on Instagram and Twitter a lot arguably too much uh, my screen time is horrifying but um, I'm on Instagram a lot and I, I do I have quite a lot of like, writing tips on Instagram as well so if you're interested in writing um, I have highlights on my page and I kind of go through and, and chat about writing and different techniques and things that I found helpful so yeah Instagram and Twitter are the main two excellent we'll put those in the show notes thank you so much thank you thanks it was a lovely. pleasure talking to you <laughs> yeah. thank you you've been listening to not too busy to write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller-McMeekin.